Scripture reading today is from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. This is God's word. Thank you, Carrie. You'll notice this is a reading from the Old Testament. Um, we're going to start a new series this Sunday. We're going to look at the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. Why would we do such a thing? Um, many people actually don't read much in the Old Testament, and particularly the prophets, they're considered kind of difficult to understand. But it's all one Bible. Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament and everything the Old Testament is about. And in particular, Isaiah is the book in the Old Testament that is quoted most in the New Testament. It is the one that Jesus taught from when he was uh, in the temple. And it is the one that prefigures Christ, that reveals Christ, probably more than any other book in the Bible. Last um, Sunday was Easter, as you heard Gary was telling us. What happened after Easter? Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and he appeared to the disciples. And right before he returned to the Father, he said to them, I want you to go study scripture. At that time, that was the Old Testament. Because it is all about me. In the Gospel of Luke, he says this, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And he said to the, to the disciples, you know, they'd spent three years with him, study and pray through the Old Testament to understand who I am. You will not understand me, you will not be able to witness me to the world unless you understand where I am in the Old Testament and what it says. And so that's what we're going to do. 
as followers of Christ. We're going to look for him in the Old Testament together, see how that is done, as a way of fulfilling our call. And the call of the Christian church is to witness and glorify Christ to the world. Some of you have read the Old Testament. Some of you probably have not. But it's good to review what the Old Testament is about. So I'm going to give you a little potted story, a little potted history of the Old Testament as a way of understanding the place of the prophets, and particularly Isaiah, what place it has in the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament about? Well, it starts well. It starts great, actually. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world. And it's beautiful, and it's good. But already, by chapter 3 of Genesis, it's fallen. Human beings rebel, disobey God, and sin enters into them and into all of creation, and everything falls. Death enters in, destruction and decay. But then by chapter 12 of Genesis... God begins his plan of redemption. God, and this is a miracle, by the way, God loves the world and human beings so much that rather than replace them and start again with a new creation, he decides to redeem us and the world rather than beginning anew. He could have just wiped the slate clean. But instead... He decides to redeem human beings, and he chooses to do it through human beings. Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he had set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. By the way, all of those of you who are thinking your Christian service is done was 75 years old when they were sent out. And where were they sent? They were sent to Canaan, the promised land. And notice, the fall cursed the world. It cursed humanity, subjected them to death, and it cursed all living things and all of creation. Now, God is coming up with a way through Abraham and his descendants to bless the world, to reverse the curse, to redeem those under the curse. So Abraham goes to the promised land, and if you read through Genesis, you see the story of his family, the story of Isaac and Jacob. They end up in uh, Egypt, and Jacob his 12 sons become the 12 tribes that are going to become Israel. And that's how Genesis ends. Jacob, by the way, wrestles with God and is renamed Israel. And so his sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. And that gets you to the end of Genesis. 
creation, fall, and the beginnings of redemption, the beginnings of the redemption story. Genesis is part of the first five books of the Bible, which are referred to as the Pentateuch. And they show you how God, through Abraham's descendants, through these 12 sons of Jacob, form a holy nation. That's in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it's basically the history of how they're saved from uh, Egypt by Moses. They're taken to Mount Sinai. They're given the law by God, the Ten Commandments. They become a holy nation set apart for God's purpose. They go wandering through the desert for 40 years. And uh, eventually, and this is the book of Joshua, they enter into the promised land. And there you are. You have a holy people descended from Abraham. And as God promised, this holy nation will be a blessing to the world. God is going to redeem the world through one of the descendants of Abraham. But God scares Israel. When they meet him at Mount Sinai, he terrifies them. When he descends, it's fire and smoke and terrible thunder, and they're absolutely terrified by his presence. And they ask to have intermediaries. They say, we can't deal with you. You're too amazing. You're too scary. You're too frightening for us. And so God agrees he will not speak to them directly. He will speak to them through an intermediary. This is Deuteronomy. I will raise up for them, Israel, a prophet like you, he's talking to Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. To put to death. So here you have the basic elements in the Old Testament. The people of Israel a people chosen by God to be a holy nation that is set apart for God's purpose to bless the world, that is, reverse the curse. And the promise that one of the descendants of Abraham, that means a human being, will be the one through whom the curse is reversed. And to keep them on the straight and narrow, Israel, God will send prophets to speak to them. He's not going to speak directly to them anymore. And if you read the Old Testament, much of the story of Israel is the story of, of Israel being corrected, going off course, following other gods, making treaties with foreign powers rather than trusting in God, um, stopping worshiping God as they worship other uh, deities or other practices, and God sending prophets and correcting the, the nation of Israel, challenging them, challenging their kings, challenging their people, keeping them focused on their purpose to be God's blessing to the world. And the first of them is Isaiah. Not the first, but Isaiah is by far the, the most prophecy that we have. It's the longest book of the prophets and is the most detailed and specific about this specific issue about the Messiah, and about God's purpose for Israel. And so Isaiah 
is the one to go to if you want to start reading the prophets. It's certainly the one that Jesus and the apostles went to when they, they quote Isaiah all the time in the New Testament. And so that's what we're going to look at. The greatest of the prophets, Isaiah. And we start with his call. The passage here, uh, Isaiah 6, is when he remembers his call, the way that God commissioned him and sent him out. This passage, by the way, um, we used to use all the time in seminary. It's almost like a proof text for anyone who wants to go and become a Christian leader, anybody who wants to be obedient to God. This is the model. This is what it looks like. This is the beginning. So let's look at it. In the year that King Uzziah died. Let's stop there. When did that happen? Notice, by the way, Isaiah wants to locate this, not as some mythical event, but he wants to locate it in time and space with a specific king and a specific date, his death, right around 740 B.C. And we know about King Uzziah because... In the Old Testament, you have the history books of Israel. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, that tell you the story of Israel and the kings and what they did and what they didn't do. And this is what we learn about Isaiah. Isaiah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. Now, at this point in Israel's history, is the history of the kings is a history of squabbling and greed and human ego and falling from grace. And what happens is Israel is split. The Hebrew people are split into two kingdoms. In the north you have Israel, and in the south you have Judea, and Isaiah was a prophet to the south. Most of the prophets are prophets to the southern kingdom of Judea because in Judea you have Jerusalem, where the temple is and where God dwells in his ark. So there is Isaiah, and he's doing well. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, another prophet, who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God gave him success. That is the model for being a king of God's people. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Isaiah the priest with 80 other courageous priests of the Lord followed him in. They confronted King Uzziah and said, It is not right for you, Isaiah, to burn incense to the Lord. This is for the priests, the descendants of Aaron, who have been consecrated to burn incense. Leave the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will not be honored by the Lord God. If you remember, in the center of Jerusalem there is the temple, and the temple is where God dwells in perfect holiness, so holy that human beings, sinful human beings, cannot draw close. They can't even enter in to the front of the temple unless the blood of sacrificial animals is spilt. 
And only the priests could go into the holy uh, place in front of the ark. And behind a curtain is the holy of holies, where God dwells above the ark between the cherubim. But Isaiah doesn't care about that. He's prideful. He's the king. He thinks he should be able to go wherever he wants to go. And so he enters into the holy place without the priests. And that's the problem. Uzziah, who had a censer in his hand, ready to burn incense, became angry. While he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. When Azariah, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave. No kidding. Because the Lord had afflicted him. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in a separate house with lepers and was banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace and governed the people of the land. The other events of Uzziah's reign from beginning to end are recorded by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. So Isaiah was God's prophet to God's people during this time of turmoil. And he was the one who was sent to correct this fall from grace, this fall from purpose. He was the one commissioned to speak in God's stead, to be God's voice to God's people. And then he describes his call. And this is the fascinating bit. This is the bit. If you've ever thought about leadership in the church, if you've ever thought about doing God's will, being a fellowship leader, joining the meals ministry, you should read this text. You should study this text. Because this is Christian leadership. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Notice, by the way, that God himself is not described. In visions, he is never described. What he stands on, you know, transparent jewels as a pavement is described, the surroundings, the building, but never himself. Because words, descriptions, they lose their meaning. They just are not up to the reality of God himself. Above him was seraphim, each with six wings. What is a seraphim? By the way, on the Ark of the Covenant, there were two seraphim put on top of the Ark as a, to symbolize God's presence there. Well, the seraphim are angels, personal angels, directly in God's presence. And it's interesting, the root word for seraphim, the root uh, Hebrew word, mingles two concepts, two ideas. The idea of serpent and the idea of fire. So you could translate this as the fiery ones or the burning ones. But add in your imagination something of the serpent or a dragon with wings. And by the way, um, nobody I read um, this last few weeks made this connection. So this might be a red herring. But have you ever noticed in the Bible, where, where did the serpent come from? Well, the Bible says that Satan was an angel, the first of the angels, and he rebelled against God and he was cast out of heaven. 
And if it's true that angels in the personal presence of God are the seraphim, and if it's true they have this element of the serpent in them, the fire in them, the dragon in them, then it's no wonder that Satan would show up as a serpent. And if you read the book of Revelation, there he's described as a fiery dragon. Maybe Satan is a fallen seraphim. Maybe he was in the direct presence of God when he rebelled against God. But as I say, that might be a red herring, because nobody else knows, seems to know about that. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Covering their faces, because even perfect angelic creatures cannot look brazenly directly at God. Covered their feet. This is a little mysterious. Uh, in the Bible, feet are sometimes used as an euphemism for genitals, but there's no evidence that angels are sexual. So it's not clear. It's sometimes used also of a naked body or of a body. So perhaps in some sense they have to cover their nakedness, but you know, Adam and Eve cavorted naked before God. One commentator suggested that um, the feet represent our personal will to do what we want. In Proverbs it says, do not turn to the right or the left, keep your feet from evil. And perhaps the sense is that they cover their feet to show that they don't go anywhere unless it's God's will, but nobody really knows. You can make what you want of the, 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 those wings. But notice that they're flying. To be in the presence of God is not some static drudgery. It's not like guards or slaves standing uh, around well, kings and queens do whatever it is they do. This is dynamic. This is constant motion. This is the ecstatic living response of creatures to the presence of their creator. It's joyful. And what are they doing? They're singing praises. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. Now you read that and it sounds pretty dull, right? Holy, 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 and they just repeat that again and again. But notice, it's a song. And it's a crowd. And holy, holy, holy is showing us something unique and special about God. In English, if you want to emphasize a word, you add the word very. So you can say, if the coffee is hot, if it's unusually hot, you could say the coffee is very hot or the coffee is extremely hot. You add an adjective to the noun and it becomes um, emphasized, a superlative. That's not true in Hebrew. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. So if something is holy, you say it's holy. Instead of saying very holy or extremely holy, you would say it's holy, holy. But nowhere, anywhere else in the Bible, is anything ever repeated three times. And yet here, God's holiness is not just very or extremely holy. It is maximally holy. It is the superlative of holy. It is the beyond any other kind of thing you could imagine as holy. It's the apex. And it's not a description 
of something God is like, it is what he is. What is holy? God is holiness. Now once again, the root word means separate. It can mean um, bright or shiny, but the, the main meaning is uh, different or uh, separate or distinct. Set apart, not like something else. And so God, in his essence, his totality, the one thing you can say about him is he is absolutely not like anything or anybody else. He's holy, holy, holy. Utterly distinct. And what is most distinct about him is his moral or his ethical nature. Notice what Isaiah how he responds. Woe to me, I, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. It is God's ethical and moral purity, his moral excellence, that is what makes him so terrible, so terrifying, so fearful. When people and the Bible talks about the fear of God, it is not primarily because frail creatures are in the presence of God's infinite and immense power, although that is true. It is primarily the consciousness of human sinfulness in the presence of infinite moral and ethical purity. That's what's terrifying about it, God, his purity. And Isaiah recognizes it. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. The English word ruined there is a translation of a Hebrew word, dema, which the actual root meaning is silence. It refers to the silence after a disaster or after a death. And so what is Isaiah saying? Unlike the seraphim, unlike the host of heaven, I am silenced before God. I can't sing his praises. I can't worship him. I can't join the seraphim in saying, on singing, holy, holy, holy. My lips are unclean, unclean. I cannot say those words. That is the destruction of sin, that you can't join God's creation in celebrating who he is and glorifying him. Sin excludes us, silences us, prevents us being part of the choir of heaven prevents us singing our joy at who God is. And notice it's not just Isaiah. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Israel's sin has silenced Israel. It cannot proclaim God's beauty to the world. It cannot witness God's beauty to the world, to the nations of the world, because its sinfulness has silenced it, shut it up, preventing it from sharing God's blessing. And that's the problem. What to do? God's holiness is a problem. And if you are going to serve him, you're going to have to deal with that problem. God's holiness is at the very core of who he is. And it is a terrible, 
and terrifying thing. It's why the Bible talks of the fear of the Lord. Because any creature, human being, or any part of creation that comes into contact with God's holiness is going to be judged. Is going to be judged and God's wrath on sin is going to annihilate it. An instant judgment day. God is like light, and where he is, there cannot be darkness. It's immediately removed, extinguished. And it's the same with any creature, and it's the same with any part of creation. It's the reason whenever God shows up, there is fire. There is trembling. There is destruction, the mountains rupture. Because an unclean creation or an unclean creature is annihilated in the presence of a perfectly holy God, extinguished. It's like matter and antimatter coming together. They're just gone. How can you possibly get close to such a God? You're like a scarecrow filled with straw trying to get close to a fire. You're like a snowman trying to embrace the sun. You can't do it. It's a contradiction. It's a paradox. And that's why Isaiah is silenced. Woe is me. I'm ruined. He has no solution. There's no possible solution. By the way, um, we've covered a lot of material in a lot of centuries here. 27, by the way. 27 centuries ago this happened. What has it got to do with us? What should we learn? What has it got to say to us? Well, we're going to unpack a lot of this in the weeks ahead. But one thing, and this is something I've experienced, uh, so this is sort of personal. The closer you get to God, the more you will be revealed. Because he is holy, and you and I are not. And it is a terrible thing. I think it is the reason that so many pastors and churches blow up so many ministry leaders go nuts. It is trying to wrap your head around a paradox. How can I, an unclean creature, a sinful man, serve and witness a perfectly holy God? There is a, an hypocrisy there you can't get away from. Speaking about the perfect things of God when you yourself are not perfect. It's a tension. A challenge for every Christian leader, for every Christian. I was warned about it when I first became a pastor. Some of you who were here, the first sermon that was ever preached when I became a pastor heard uh, the pastor say, Tony, you will be revealed. And he was right. Some people go mad. Some people genuinely do become hypocrites. Some become drunk. Some steal money from the church and run away to the Caribbean. There are many responses that human beings come up with to this problem. But there is only one antidote. There is only one way to deal with this incipient hypocrisy, with this paradox, with this challenge. And it's something that we can't do. It's something that God has to do for us. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, 
with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. Isaiah can't do anything, and we can't do anything. Because to be a sinful human is to be a, in a predicament. It's not a problem to be solved. It is a predicament to exist in. Only God can solve the problem. Only God in this situation can act. And we see a picture of it right here. What is that altar that they're taking the coal from, that the seraphim brings the coal from? That's the altar of sacrifice. You remember, this is the temple. And the sacrificial altar is where people sacrificed lamb or whatever other creature they brought. And it was the blood of that sacrifice the payment of that sacrifice that allowed them to come to the temple at all in Jerusalem. So what the seraphim is bringing is the burning sacrifice from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What does it mean that something is atoned. Well, if you go in the dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says, atonement is reparation for an offense or an injury. That is, satisfaction when you have been in, in, uh, injured. Or, the reconciliation of God and humankind through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That is atonement. You can think of the word as at-one-ment. That which is separated, alienated, two aggrieved parties are made at one again through the payment of a sacrifice. And at the temple, the sacrifice was a sacrifice of blood. You heard it in Merriam-Webster. This is a picture of the Christian notion of Jesus' sacrifice. This is a preview. What you're getting in Isaiah is the sacramental system of the temple laid out in advance so that when Jesus shows up, he will become intelligible. That you'll understand, if you've read your Old Testament, why he did what he did. The purpose of Israel and the whole sacrificial system and the temple and the priests, all of it was to create a nation who could understand the Messiah. So when he showed up, he made sense. So you could see what it is he was doing. Paul puts it this way in Romans. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's all of Christianity right there. But it's only intelligible if you understand the Old Testament and you understand what God was trying to achieve through Israel. Now, as I say, we're going to unpack this 
as we go through the Sundays and as we go through Isaiah. But one final thought. What immediately happens? Isaiah's sin is taken away when his lips are touched by the sacrifice. And what immediately happens? Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. The experience in that live coal of God's gracious sacrifice, his payment of sin on Isaiah's behalf, transforms Isaiah. And immediately he is ready to be sent back to Israel, sinful Israel, and correct and guide God's people. Immediately. And I'm going to tell you, based on my experience, if and when, if it hasn't happened already, you directly experience God's grace, this will happen to you. We are not saved out of this world. We are saved to participate with God in the redemption of this world. That's our job. That's why our church is called Redeemer, by the way. Our job as Christians is, through our service to God, to redeem the people and things of this world, to restore them, to remove the curse, to educate people about Jesus, to bring them to the temple as well. And it starts with this encounter with God's grace. You know, in a moment we're going to go to the temple. Now it's the Lord's table, but it's a still a sacrificial altar. You heard Gary refer to it. It's right here in the center because it's where we encounter God's sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and where we receive his sacrifice, his body and his blood. And when we eat that, we are receiving God's grace afresh. We are being renewed. And we are being given a glimpse at what Christ did on our behalf. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Here I am, send me. Jesus Christ said that. He came on God's behalf into a broken world and he sacrificed himself so that we could be saved. This is a preview, a glimpse of what Jesus went through. And when you receive the elements this morning, I want you to think about that. He didn't have to do it. The only reason to do it is because he loves you. Because he wants you to be saved. He wants you to end your silence and to be able to witness and celebrate God so that one day you can join that heavenly choir and sing with the seraphim and the angels so that you will be able to exalt and celebrate God's glorious presence without fear because you will be part of it, included by Jesus' sacrifice, cleansed by his blood, invited by his table. That's the Christian story. We're going to unpack it the next several Sundays, but this is where it begins. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the picture we get through Isaiah of you and what it meant for you to come into our world 
sent by your Father to sacrifice yourself for us. Lord, as, uh, as we read through Isaiah together, we pray that you would reveal more and more of yourself to us. And this morning, as we come to the table, we pray, Lord, that we would feel and receive that grace, that we would see you more clearly, that we would understand ourselves as your people more completely. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.